0: If you have your Bibles, please turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. We've been working our way uh, through the Gospel, and this week, actually, and next week are the only two weeks where I plan on taking a whole chapter uh, at a time. So this morning, uh, Lord willing, we're going to consider the entire uh, 14th chapter. Before we do, uh, we will read it together and this is not a time to let your mind wander this is a time to uh, hear the very word of god it's so important for us to remember that that when we hear scripture uh, we are truly hearing words that god himself has breathed out and has given to us so luke chapter 14 uh, beginning at verse 1 this is the word of god One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lime, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile, it is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Well, there's obviously a lot in this text, a lot in this passage, and so before we begin to unpack it together, we're going to pray and ask for the Lord's direction and help. Our Father, you are a great God, and you dwell in heaven, in the highest heaven. Even the highest heaven cannot contain you in all that you are. And so we approach you as a transcendent and as an awesome God. But you are also our Father, and you love us. And you dwell here on earth with those who are lowly and humble and contrite and broken. And so, Father, we ask that you will continue to be with us, that you will make us into the people that you desire us to be. We pray that you will take your Son and all that he is and all that he has done for us and that you will uh, apply his righteousness to us in a saving way, but also that you will then begin to conform us into his image, that every day that we live in this world we will become more and more like Jesus Christ. We pray that your Holy Spirit will fill every heart, every mind here and now, that we will know you, that we will be uh, thrilled to know more of you, that we will respond to your word as we ought. Uh, Father, we pray for those who are uh, not able to be here this morning. We think of uh, a number of our university students uh, at Summit uh, this weekend with Power to Change, and we thank you for uh, the time that's provided for them. We pray that this will be an important time for them. Uh, in terms of focusing and coming to know you, uh, coming to love you a little bit more, and being prepared for all the work that lies ahead uh, in this academic year. For those who are here, uh, Lord, for those who are students who are here, we pray the same. Won't you give them strength and wisdom? Uh, Give them godliness through your spirit. Uh, Give them uh, friends who will lead them forward as they walk with you. And may they see many people come to know you through sharing their faith on the campuses. Lord, for those who are sick and who are struggling with different health issues who are not able to be here, we just ask that your spirit will strengthen their bodies and that more importantly, your spirit will strengthen their hearts, strengthen the inner person. Draw them close to you. Help them to feel and know your love for them through Jesus Christ. And for us, as we turn to your word, Lord, we ask that you will illuminate it, shine its light into our hearts. And help us to receive it from you, for we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, the the reason I'm taking such a big chunk, and as we've been working through Luke's gospel, we, we have been taking pretty large chunks anyway, uh, but the reason I'm taking the whole chapter you know, this week and then next week, Luke 15 in one shot, isn't because there isn't much here, uh, there is there's a lot here and so i'm going to be encouraging you right now uh, to be reading these texts to be meditating on them uh, you do know and i know that you know this on a sunday morning you are getting just the merest scratching of the surface of what the word of god has for us and that doesn't it doesn't matter how big or small of a chunk we take We are never coming close to getting to the bottom of all that God's Word contains. So this is a lifetime process, you know, for us to be in the Word, mulling it over, praying over it, meditating on it, studying it. There's so much in here. So having said that, I do realize that we could do several messages out of this passage. I want to try to show how it's very interconnected, though, from beginning to end. The other reason that I'm able to take this larger section is that two weeks ago, at the beginning of Luke chapter 13, uh, Jesus heals a crippled woman on the Sabbath. And so the, the theme, and even the way that Jesus expresses his argumentation justifying what he has done, it's not just verbatim what he said earlier, but it's so similar that having taken sort of an extended period of time to look at Sabbath, to look at Jesus' argumentation, I'm not going to repeat all of that now. Okay, So uh, it's not that it's unimportant, but we're going to move past it in terms of looking at some other things. So the scenario, though, uh, is similar when Jesus heals the woman. Here's this man, and it's not a, an immediate crisis. Uh, he has a condition where uh, almost certainly he's retaining fluid, and uh, he could be healed the next day. But Jesus decides, here's this man, and he needs to be healed Today, on the Sabbath day. And notice again when Jesus says to the Pharisees in verse 2, or sorry in verse 2, verse 1 rather, we're told he's being carefully watched. So Jesus is being set up here. They have this man, some scholars actually think that this man is a plant. You know, he's been invited on purpose uh, just to see what Jesus is going to do. Uh, The reason for that is that this man's condition probably would have rendered him uncleaner. And to be in the house of a Pharisee, the Pharisees were always very concerned about the status of their guests. And so for the Pharisees to have invited this man and Jesus, some scholars say, you know, this seems pretty suspicious. With the note that they're watching him carefully, uh, they've sort of set him up. And so Jesus takes the initiative, and he asks them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And look at verse 4. They don't say anything. And they don't say anything because they've been put to the worst before when it comes to talking about the sabbath and talking about healing so they just don't say anything and so then jesus takes that as license he heals the man sends him on his way and then jesus asks them this question if one of you is a child or an ox that falls into a well on the sabbath day will you not immediately pull it out and in verse six they had nothing to say but again, Jesus showing that if we will if we will care for animals, same argument that he used when he heals the woman in chapter 13, if we'll care for animals, how much more should we be concerned with other people? How much more so, if we will work for an ox or a donkey, how much more should we be working to bless other people and for their good? Uh, one of the tragic things about this is that the Pharisees, are clearly confronted with what is true, but they refuse to acknowledge it. They have nothing to say. They know they can't answer. They know they can't debate. They know they can't argue. They know that they're wrong. They're wrong in their position they have taken, and they're wrong about Jesus. In other words, they know that Jesus is right. And they can't deny the power that he has. They can't deny the healings that they see. They are confronted again and again and again with the truth of what Jesus says and the power of Jesus to heal, and they say nothing. They will not acknowledge the truth of what he says, the power of God revealed before their eyes. They will not say anything. And this, unfortunately, is not constrained just to the Pharisees in the first century. This is the hard-heartedness of the human condition. I mean, there are so many people who will say, if God would just do this or do that, then I would believe in him. You know, If God would just speak from heaven to me personally, or if God would just do something, if I could see it with my own eyes, then I would believe. But what we see is that that's just not the case. Again and again and again and again, people cannot deny the validity of what they're told. They cannot deny the validity of the truthfulness of Jesus Christ, and they cannot refute his miraculous power. But still, they will not bend the knee. They still will not acknowledge that he is Lord. They will not embrace him. They will not serve him. They will not love him. They will rather persist in their rebellion against the one who is true. And the one who has the power to heal than simply to acknowledge who he is and become his disciple. But Jesus also notices that while all of this is going on, with all of their self-righteousness and with all of their silence, they're bickering and they're jostling for position. They're trying to get the most prominent places at the meal. And, And we do this a little bit, I mean a little bit in our culture, particularly on special occasions. But in the first century, there's, the culture was probably an honor-shame culture. And so where you were sitting, if there was a meal, where you were sitting sort of highlighted your social prominence or lack thereof. So, if you were sitting right next to the host, that would be a sign that you were favored. You, know, you were one of the important people. The further you were away... From the movers and shakers in the center, the less important you were. Now, we do this just a little tiny bit, not at all for the same reasons. But you know, at a wedding, at a reception, you know, there's the head table. And you can kind of tell that the people at the head table have a special relationship with the couple. And that's the way it should be. It's a beautiful thing. And so you can just imagine, though, you know, if you had to pick your own seats or if you were really conscious about this and you really wanted to show that, you know, you had a special relationship with someone, you try to get as close to them as possible. And this is always awkward for me, uh, you know, when I'm invited to wedding receptions because, you know, I, I'm often the minister and the groom always wants me to be the best man too. And I can't do both. And so, you know, at the reception, it's always awkward. Should I sit next to the groom or maybe I'll, I'll, no, you know, that's awkward for the best man. I don't want him to feel bad. So I'll just sit at my table, you know, because obviously there's this prominence, you know, and this relationship, but they're seriously doing that. They're, they're taking the positions which will highlight their own importance, And so Jesus says, listen, guys, first of all, this doesn't make any sense. Even in our cultural context, it's just not intelligent. Because if you take a seat and someone else comes along who's going to be seated there, you're just going to be kicked down to the end. All the other seats are going to be filled in and you're going to be humiliated. So even as a tactic, this is a bad ploy. But more to the point, what about humility? Where does this self exaltation come from? Where does this jockeying for position come from? Why are we so determined as human beings to be seen and to be a somebody? Like, why are we like this? It's the opposite of what we should be. Not only because we are small and fine, but because we are sinners. And one of the things we we talked about this a little bit in Sunday school actually this morning, or in in the in my Sunday school class. Uh, we were talking a little bit about how all through Scripture there, there, there runs this sort of bifurcation between the proud and the humble. And you cannot have more polarized sort of uh, re- reactions and stances of God towards people than you can have between his absolute holy revulsion towards those who are proud and arrogant and his absolute love and compassion and mercy and grace to the humble. So that those who humble themselves, the Lord exalts. Those who walk in pride, says King Nebuchadnezzar, after God had humbled him. Those who walk in pride, he is able to abase. Luke's gospel, we talked about reversal theology, is one of the theological marks of Luke's gospel. Luke is always showing us this. Those who are humble, the Lord will exalt Those who are rulers in their own arrogance, he will bring low. And so Jesus here uses this cultural example to get to this theological point. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Uh, King Saul learns this in the Old Testament. You who were once small in your own eyes, Samuel says. Now look at you, building monuments to yourself, disobeying the word of God. The Lord has taken the kingship. From you. You have been rejected by the Lord. Those who walk in pride, He humbles. Those who are humble, He exalts. And you can sort of work through that then. In our culture, that's going to cash itself out in different forms than it did in terms of picking your seat at the table. But the human heart hasn't changed since the first century. And so these are still things in different cultural ways. We ourselves will be jostling and jockeying for position. And we need to be self-conscious of that. We need to be aware of the tendency of our heart in subtle ways, trying to exalt ourselves, preening our feathers, hoping to be noticed, rather than humbly serving others. And then Jesus says, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. Now, let's be honest. Depending on what your extended family relationships are like, it's tempting to apply that literally. You know, uh, sorry, no more family dinners. It uh, is not allowed. You know, no relatives, no brothers or sisters. I wish I could, but I just can't. Uh, that's obviously not exactly what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying here, again, in terms of the culture, is if you were invited to someone's home, there was it was expected that that invitation would be reciprocal so that you would have someone in And then they would have you in. And so what you're doing is you're trying to invite the people over who will raise your social status. So you're trying to get into the A crowd. And so you invite someone in, and then you get into their home. And if there's other people there, you start forming the right connections. You're networking. You're rubbing shoulders with the right people. You're trying to climb the social ladder. And so you're just very careful about who you invite over. And what Jesus is saying here isn't, listen, never eat a meal with your family. And he's not saying, you know, if your next-door neighbor has a lot of money, it's imp- you're not allowed to have them over for a meal. But what he's saying is, if you're going to be hospitable, be hospitable. Like, take care of people. In other words, I think what Jesus is really saying is this, don't even worry about who the, what they're like and who they are and their demographic. and Don't even worry about that. Like, if you're, if you're worried about that, then there's something fundamentally wrong in the first place with your heart and with this invitation system that you have. Don't invite people over sort of to scratch their back and then hope that you know they'll scratch yours later. It's not reciprocity, it's being a blessing to other people, it's being open to help others without thinking about what they can do for you in return. That's the principle. So when you invite, or when you have a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind and you will be blessed and this is these people are these categories are drawn from you know the old testament and so they sort of highlight people who were disadvantaged and marginalized in society without social welfare infrastructures you know without lots of white collar desk jobs to be crippled to be lame to be blind it meant that you didn't make any money you were a beggar and so you're poor so here Jesus is saying look out for other people, take care of other people. In a sense, he's almost saying that the priority should be not to look up to people better than us, trying to sort of uh, curry their favor so that we can get brought up into their new social structure. We're not trying to go up. We're looking for who we can help. That should be the heart of the believer. Rather than trying to be the best and only hang out with the best, we're actually trying to be a blessing to the world, whatever that looks like. And they can't repay you, Jesus says, but you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And this is something also very important, very, just very important for us to remember because we, we just have a hard time with this, or at least I do. It is really, really hard for me to actually store up treasure in heaven. It's really hard because heaven hasn't, it's unseen. No, I mean, not According, not not, not according to, like, the 75 million Christian movies where someone's gone to heaven and come back and made a million dollars out of it. But, like, for me, like, I haven't seen heaven yet. And, you know, I'm so submerged in this temporal, you know, physical reality that it's hard for me to walk by faith and not by sight. Maybe I'm the only one. But I, I, I struggle with that. And to, but to be reminded, no, like... Why I'm not supposed to live to try to get everything out of this world that I possibly can, because, you know, you only live once, so, you know, make it count and get everything out of it now. This is just the smallest little bit of my life. There is a resurrection of the righteous. There is eternal life. And and God says, Jesus says here, you will be repaid at the resurrection. So in in one sense, it's almost like saying, listen, you're just you're trying to curry the favor with the wrong people. Like, you're trying to get people over who will repay you by having you over, you know, for a stake. Why don't you do something which will cause God to repay you at the resurrection in the end times? Like, Like, why don't you work for heavenly reward? Why don't you work for God's favor? Why don't you lay up treasure in heaven? Doesn't that make more sense than jockeying for position here on earth? Because if that's what you're doing, then everything that you think that you have here on earth will be lost anyway. Because those who live for themselves, those who are self-exalting, will be humbled. They will lose it all. And then hearing this, hearing the resurrection of the righteous, one of those, verse 15 at the table with him, says, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And he's right. Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. In the Old Testament, there is this prophetic expectation that one day the Messiah will come and the Messiah will put all the world to right and the Lord Almighty will create a new age, a new heavens and a new earth. That's how the book of Isaiah ends, the creation of a new heavens and new earth. Language obviously picked up on in Revelation. And there will be a a great feast provided a feast of luxury and sumptuousness. It will be just glorious in the presence of God, the presence of God's Messiah. And this person says, "All oh, blessed are those who are going to eat in the feast at the feast of the kingdom of God." Now, what's interesting is that all of the Pharisees there, who were rejecting Jesus, were confident they were going to have a seat at the t- at, in the feast of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus. Agrees with him, yes, blessed are those who will be there. But let me tell you a parable about what that looks like. And this man throws a great banquet, invites many guests. He's very wealthy, prepares it, and now he's invited people already, and now he goes out to tell them, it's time. And they all begin to make excuses. And there are discussions about how serious these excuses are. Some people are just convinced they're just absolutely lame, you know, in every possible way. These are just pathetic excuses. And that might be. So the guy who says, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. To buy one ox made you rich in the first century. I bought five pairs of oxen. You are a very, very rich person. I'm on my way to try them out. Wait a, minute. wait a minute you just bought 10 ox you bought five pairs of plowing oxen and you're gonna go try them out like did you buy them online like, like you didn't didn't you try them out before you bought them? like what are you talking about you know or i just bought a field i must go and see it like who did you buy the field from? What do you mean you have to go see it? Like didn't you go and see it before you bought it? Like what is going on with these people? And then the worst one of all, I just got married, so I can't come. Now listen, here's the truth. You get married. Young men. You take your wife to every free dinner that comes along. You understand? I discovered you're turning down a banquet because you got married? That's crazy. This is, what are you guys doing? So people are like, these are just ridiculous. These are just ridiculous excuses. On the other hand, these excuses though also hit the biggest areas of our life. Property, work, and family. In other words, They may be lame, but they also may be right at the heart of things that we are going to put in the place of responding to God. Things that will eclipse who God is in our priorities. Work, property, wealth, and family relationships. And so they don't come. The master sends out the servant, and notice in verse 21, you have the exact same list that you have in verse 13. So the master goes out and he brings in... Uh, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And Jesus had said in verse 13, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. These are the exact same categories. In other words, what Jesus is doing is Jesus saying, look, God practices what he preaches. We are bringing in the same people. And the problem here with the rich people, the Pharisee, going, oh, blessed are those who eat in the kingdom of God. The problem is they don't see their brokenness and their poverty of spirit. They don't realize that it's the ones who are full of themselves in terms of what the world provides and in terms of their intellects and in terms of their religiousness. It's those ones who don't end up coming because they hear what Jesus says and they say nothing. They'll come to God on their own, in their own time, in their own way. I don't need you, Jesus. Blessed are those who are going to eat at the kingdom of God. I'm earning my own way. I don't need your healing. I don't need your wisdom. I don't need your Sabbath teaching. I don't need you. I'm going to be blessed and I'm going to be there. And Jesus says, no, you see, you you reject me. You reject the invitation. And it's pathetic. All the excuses, I'm good enough. I can measure up. I can do it. It doesn't make any sense. Go and get these people who are broken. Go and get these people who are poor. And I think in the extension then would be by analogy, these are the, spiritually, these are the poor in spirit. Blessed, blessed are those who lead the feast in the kingdom of God, yes, but blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You don't go into the feast unless you're poor in spirit. And so the host goes out, sends out his servant, and he compels them to come in. And the image is actually one of Hospitality of sort of an insistent host taking a reluctant guest and and taking them by the hand and saying, no, 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 I really want you to come in. Come on in. Guiding them in, bringing them in, not breaking their will and forcing them against their desire, but guiding them into the feast. You will come in. You will eat. I want you here. And the house is full. Full of guests. Now, you might think that you can decide not to go to the banquet. It's an invitation. It's optional. But what Jesus says next proves that this is not an invitation that you can refuse. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be... My disciple. Now look at this is this gives you the theme of this section. Verse 25, uh, 26 Such a person cannot be my disciple. Verse 27 they cannot be my disciple and verse 33 they cannot be my disciple. So three times Jesus says unless you do these things you cannot be my disciples. That's repetition, that's emphasis. So this section is on what it looks like to not be his disciple and to make it impossible to be his disciple. In other words, you can't just sort of say, oh, an invitation's coming out. Sounds easy. Sure, I'll stroll over there into the kingdom of God at the right time. You must give up all that you are. You must hate all of your relatives. Now, what Jesus is doing here is, is he's saying that in, in the Jewish culture, uh, love and hate language were used as in, as relative contrasting pairs. So it wasn't absolutized. So he's not actually saying you need to hate your parents. Uh, He teaches us to honor our father and mother. So he's not teaching us to hate our parents. But what he is saying is, in terms of that sort of Semitic uh, contrast, that your love for God must be so great That every other relationship that you have is almost like hatred. You must prioritize God so much. There there is no close run second. There's nothing coming close to your commitment to Jesus Christ. Nothing. So you, you you must hate your own life. Hate your family. Now, of course, the Bible teaches us to love our family to love, we're even told to love our enemies. So we are to love other people, but it's just that by way of relative contrast, God isn't sort of just, when we make the list of number of our priorities, God isn't just number one and then you sort of slot things in by themselves. God is on another page of your priority list. Like God is a, Category all by himself. Nothing else is on the same list with God. Nothing else is on the same list with Jesus Christ. Absolute, unique sovereignty in our affections and commitment. Nothing else. God and God alone. And then on another piece of paper, you start making your other list of priorities. So that's that sort of contrast, the strongest possible language. You must be willing to die. You must pick up your cross and follow Jesus, or you cannot be his disciple. So there's an invitation to a banquet, but you better count the cost. Because if you don't count the cost, you can't be his disciple. If you're not his disciple, you're not going in to sit at the table. And then he gives these two examples. Sitting down and figuring out if you can build a tower. I I will refrain from drawing out a in-life application of this principle with our church and renovations in terms of the building. I will not say that uh, maybe, you know, even in the physical world, this is the principle that Jesus is telling us. Make sure if you're going to start, make sure you can finish. Make sure you can sustain it. Make sure that you don't pour in a bunch of money to do half the job and then have to walk away. Make sure that you're sure, okay? Count the cost. Figure it out. Be careful. That's what Jesus... Is saying. But you might sit down and say, you know what, well, I don't need to, I don't need to build a tower. Maybe I just won't. What good's a tower anyway? I mean, they're pretty cool, but I don't really need a tower. So I'm just not gonna build one. But the problem is, this isn't optional. This choice is forced. The next illustration is not of you sitting down to figure out if you can build a tower the next illustration is there is a king coming with an army so what are you going to do yesterday uh, luke pharaoh had a bachelor party it's pretty fun and because i'm so socially prominent i was invited and had the best seat, and it was all—it was great. Uh, and so we did this thing; it was called battle archery, where it's sort of like paintball but with bows and arrows. Um, and and so we're we're playing, and I'm not sure if you've ever seen the Hunger Games. Uh, for those of you who like the Hunger Games, you know Katniss Everdeen. I was like her, like just yes! awesome, just unbelievable. You know, the arrow would come towards me, and I just would grab it out of the air and put it on my string. <laughs> take the person out. It was absolutely fantastic. And so, there's different games, and mainly there's this line in the middle that you can't cross. Uh, except for one game we played, and, and Luke got to be this special guy, because it's his big day. And uh, actually, I think next week's the big day. Bachelor Party's not quite the big day. It's a prelude to it. And so, we're going to play this special game where he can run around shooting anyone any way he wants, And we can't kill him unless we shoot him in the head. Okay. So the game starts and Luke comes running and one of the McEwen lambs goes walking out and Luke comes running up and he's just going to just peg him. Except I'm on the side of the McEwans. So I take the arrow, fit it into the string, pull back. Calmly take a breath. <laughs> Let it fly. Luke, where did that arrow hit you? Right in the face. <laughs> Bam. It was like the luckiest thing I've ever done. <laughs> because like, when, we were, like, when we were practicing, you know how to practice on it. Like, in my shot, after, I put the arrow on the string and then pull it back, and the arrow kind of like drifts off. So I had to like bring it back, and it drifts off again. And I and I shot at a stationary target like 30 feet away. The arrow landed like 10 feet short and like seven feet off to the left, and just skidded on the ground. So I don't have no idea how I pegged Luke directly in the face. Although I was praying, so maybe that's maybe that was part of it. But in the game, except for that one, like you could just not go near the line. You can just sort of hang out at the back and try not to get hit. But when someone's coming after you, they force the issue. And that's exactly the the image that Jesus uses here. The king is coming. He's got 20,000 soldiers. You have half that force. In other words, you can't win. You are going to lose this battle. So what are you going to do? Figure it out. And send a delegation for peace. In other words, lay down your arms. Stop fighting. Don't fight. You will be destroyed. Leon Morris, great commentator, says the first one, the tower, it it says, sit down and figure out if you can follow Jesus. Sit down and figure it out. But the second illustration says, sit down and figure out if you can afford not to follow Jesus. Because he's coming. The king is returning. And there's an invitation, come to the banquet. But there's also a great threat of judgment. You you resist the king. And he came the first time. And yes, it was glorious splendor for you had eyes to see it. And it was incredible what Jesus did. The king reigning on the cross. And all of that is true. But the first time he came... In humility, the first time he came to be rejected, the first time he came to be a substitutionary sacrifice, paying the penalty for our sin, the first time he came to be our Redeemer, the second time he comes, he comes in manifest, revealed, glorious power and judgment. There is an inevitable date with destiny that you have with Jesus Christ. This isn't sitting around figuring out whether or not you want to build a tower. There is a war coming. And you will lose unless you humble yourself and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Fascinatingly, this exact progression is taught in the book of Revelation chapter 19. So just turn there really quickly. Turn over to Revelation chapter 19. So in Revelation 19, you have this beautiful depiction of the messianic wedding feast. Starting at verse 5. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. A scene of glory, Thankfulness, rejoicing, praise, clothed in righteousness, invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And in the very next thing, verse 11, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. is the king of kings and lord of lords. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, "Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. There are two feasts of God." The one is the wedding feast of the Lamb, glory and splendor and salvation. The other is the feast of the birds of the air, which eat and consume the defiled and destructed enemies of God. The king is coming and you cannot resist him. He's the king of kings and lord of lords riding in front of heaven's army. That's one of the amazing things. He invites us. Just come and, come and dine with me. Why? Why persist? Why be destroyed? Why die? Come and know me. Lay down your arms. Come be robed in righteousness. Come and know me. Communion reminds us of these things. This is an invitation to the wedding feast of the Lamb. In reminding us of... The death of Jesus. Why should you die? Jesus died in your place. Why should your blood be shed? His blood was shed for you. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we do this, and as much as we do these things, we remember the Lord, but we also proclaim his death until he comes. You see. You are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb and it is a reminder, the King is coming. The King is coming. The King is coming. Let nothing... Nothing keep you from responding to his gracious invitation. Not family, not money, not possessions, not business, not education. Let nothing keep you from humbling yourself, acknowledging your sin, trusting Jesus' righteousness, and turning your life over to God. May God help us to count the cost. But may God also help us to see the gracious blessing. Of knowing Him, I'm going to ask the deacons to come forward. Who are going to help distribute these elements this morning? And uh, you stop and for a moment, just just pray. Ask the Lord's Spirit to search in your heart to make sure that you are someone who knows Him, who's responded to His invitation. And in a few moments, I'll lead us together in prayer.